Good evening once again. How was your meditation break? Still meditating. Yeah, still meditating. All right. <clears throat> I don't know about you, I was um, uh, for many years a very serious meditator. And, um, you know, to be a serious meditator is rather problematic. Um, partly this, you know, you only find out years later the mistakes you've done. I thought I was just being a sincere, but, you know, I was in one of Nina Weiss's theater improvisation classes, and I did a little movement piece, and she said, that was nice, and would you like some feedback? <laughs> And uh, she said, you know, you had a lot of variety of movements, you know, fast and slow and smooth and jerky. And, but it seemed like everything you did had some meaning. <laughs> did you want to limit yourself in your life just to doing things that have meaning? And it's like, you know, caught again. You know? <laughs> Spotted. So I've spent years seeing if I can lighten up a little bit and not be so serious. It's a work in progress, you know, coming along. Well, I um, and uh, speaking of which, I want to um, I want to uh, start my talk really with a story uh, about Suzuki Roshi uh, when we were first starting at Tassahara, and. Um, I went. Uh, I was. Uh, um, I had become a Zen student, and then I got a job at the, at this place called Tassahara, Tassahara Hot Springs. Some of you probably been there. And uh, I got a job in the kitchen. I was the dishwasher. And um, once I got there, the uh, they were making this fabulous bread, and I thought I asked them to teach me, and they said sure. And uh, so then I was the dishwasher and the baker. And that was just fun for me. It was work for them to make bread. So they were happy to do less work and to have me do have more fun. <laughs> and uh, after a couple of months, one of the cooks quit. So the owners of Tassar said, why don't you take his job? So I did. And I was uh, 21 years old. And I, I became a cook. And um, within, you know, hours, I was um, temperamental. <laughs> I thought that those cooks just were so, it was so strange the way that they would lose it and become upset. And, you know, when I was the dishwasher, I was just calm and no problem and... So that's when, um, you know, people in my life started having meetings. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do about Ed? <laughs> oh, boy. And, you know, we, we reached some kind of deal like, okay, let's just see if we can get through the summer. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I had a couple of months of experience, so then uh, I was going to, continuing to practice meditation at the Zen Center, and 
it turned out that December that Zen Center bought Tassahara. So then they came to me and said, well, you've had a couple months of experience. Why don't you be the head cook? <laughs> so I had no idea. I said, sure. Of course. Um, thank you for recognizing my great talent. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that was, um, you know, a pretty overwhelming job. Um, and um, I went down to Tassara probably in April the next year. And, you know, that winter, um, there was a big, wonderful, pretty nice kitchen, you know, with a big, tall uh, roof and a kind of cupola in the middle and, uh, you know, that where the air could go up and, you know, there's some ventilation and there's a fan and... Um, Anyway, that winter, um, we're not quite sure what happened, or maybe some people know better, but there was a few caretakers down there, and we are talking about the 60s. And there were many times when the phone wasn't working, the phone was one wire through eight or ten miles of woods. So if a storm, if there was any kind of storm, you know, the, the wire would be down, it could be down until somebody walked the line and nailed it back onto the tree. <laughs> and um, so, and then there's times occasionally when the road, you know, you can't go in and out on the road, there's, there's snow on the road or there's a tree across the road or something, or there's a washout. So anyway, meantime, the people down there, we're not quite sure what they were doing, but they decided that it would be good to tear down the old kitchen because they had heard that we needed a new kitchen before we could open again. This was not a correct idea. <laughs> but in their, you know, in their state of mind and isolation, they, <laughs> they believed this. So they tore down the kitchen and left just the floor of the kitchen, a big open deck with nothing on it. And then they moved the kitchen into what had been the crew's dining room. So then in this little space, kind of like a home kitchen, you know, we would cook for 30 or 40 guests and 30 or 40 students or 70 students or, you know. And if the weather was good, we could set up outside too, work outside as well as in this little room. Otherwise, we had five or six people working in this little space. So it was pretty intense. Uh, but when I first got there, they, you know, somebody said to me, I started to cook something, and they said, at Tassahara, we don't use salt. <laughs> and I said, oh, why not? And they said, salt is bad for you. Do you know, understand how articulate people can be usually about health things, diet things? <sighs> that was just the beginning, you know. Um, so I had to, I felt obliged. I went to my Zen teacher, Suzuki Roshi, and I said, they've told me that I can't use salt. What do you think? 
<laughs> and he said, um, you're the head cook. I think you can use salt if you want. <laughs> and um, so we started using salt. And um, then there was this other practice that um, took a little getting used to, but in the morning we had cooked cereal. We'd have oatmeal or rice cream or cream of wheat or cornmeal cereal, some kind of grain in a hot cereal. And uh, we were eating at that time family style. So we'd have a, you'd get your food and then you could sit at a table. And at the table there'd be a pitcher of milk and some sugar. And then because some people, you know, we're talking the 60s now, okay, so things are different now. In those days, people wanted higher fat content. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't milk or 2% or non-fat milk, it was milk and then half and half and occasionally cream. And then if some, for the people who didn't like that, the canned milk, okay? And then because some people don't like white sugar, we had brown sugar, and then some people we can't eat sugar. They had honey, and then some people didn't like honey either. We had molasses. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't you be able to have your morning cereal taste the way you want it to? And isn't it appropriate not to deprive anybody of their choice of condiments for their cereal? So we d we're doing this for a while. Now, this is okay. You're sitting at a table, and you, so you have one of these sets for each table, and people can reach and get you know, whatever they want, or pass, please pass, and it works out pretty nicely. Then we finally got our meditation hall ready, and we started having breakfast in the meditation hall. So now you have a row of people sitting there, and then this s s breakfast is served, and then how do you get the condiments? Right? <laughs> So we would have little trays with the various milks, with pitchers of the various milks. And then if you, depending on how far you want that to go down the road, it takes a long time. Everybody's sitting. <laughs> Waiting or, you know, and, and you've got a tray of the, the milks and a tray of these sugars. And then, uh, so we found out that it's really good if you have just a tray for about every three people, really. Can you imagine how many little pitchers of milk this is now, and how many little, you know, bowls of sugar and honey and molasses? And then it comes back to the kitchen, we have 30 or 40 of these things. Then do you, like, what do you do with them? Do you just cover them with saran wrap and then refrigerate? What do you do, you know? Or do you dump them all out and then wash all of these things? <sighs> so uh, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> Some of you may know David Chadwick. David was there, and we talked about this. What do we do? <laughs> and uh, about the third morning, finally, that we did this, um, I had been serving uh, breakfast, and then we, we, somebody came out of the meditation hall and said, Suzuki Roshi would like to give a talk. He wants everybody in the meditation hall. So we went in and sat down, and then Suzuki Roshi gave this little talk. And he said, 
I don't understand you Americans. <laughs> when you put so much milk and sugar on your cereal in the morning, how can you taste the true spirit of the grain? What, did you think that you could just put milk and sugar on everything in your life and make every moment taste just the way you want it to? <laughs> now, I don't think any of us had had the idea that of tasting the true spirit of the grain. <laughs> just a second. This is like a new concept. <laughs> I had certainly never had that idea. I'd, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and then, and then there's further that, you know. Every moment, you could, perhaps you could see if you could taste the true spirit of the moment, the true spirit of you yourself. You know, you could taste the true spirit of your heart, you know, of your presence, of your practice. Uh, so after his talk, anyway, we went back to the kitchen and we kind of celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't have to fill up all those little pitchers and dishes any longer. And we took it upon ourselves just to serve, at that point, roasted sesame seeds with salt. You know, sesame salt, in Japanese, you know, gomashio. So uh, that's, to this day, is the way we serve, you know, cereal in the morning in the meditation hall. If it's out in the buffet line, then we put out milk and sugar. But we don't put out the honey and we don't, you know, but now, you know, now it's milk and rice milk and soy milk and... <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole different, you know, era. <laughs> but this is, um, you know, a very interesting concept. Um, why don't you taste the true spirit of the grain? Why don't you taste the true spirit of, of this moment? And what would that be like? On, and um, obviously, you know, some moments would be more pleasant and others less pleasant. And when you taste things, you taste uh, sweet and sour and salty and bitter and pungent, you know, peppery. And then some moments are kind of plain and some moments are kind of rotten. <laughs> <laughs> you know. uh -uh. Suzuki Roshi also at one point told us, oh, but before I go on to that, I'd also like to remind you that then besides the taste that we can discriminate, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, flame, rotten, besides the taste that we can discriminate, we discriminate this from that, you know, there's the true spirit of the grain is, is on one hand, you know, this kind of quality, something particular, but then it's also something that's not particular. Right? You know, it's something that 
uh, is the same as you yourself. Or in Zen, we, or we say sometimes in Buddhism, you know, it's, you know, it's the flavor of emptiness. Or you could say, um, it's the, in Zen sometimes they say, this is the one flavor of reality. Even though we discriminate, on one hand, reality is something we discriminate, and on the other hand, there is a reality which is other than the appearances that we get involved in. So you can see here, you know, and that what, basic, what Buddhism says is, you know, the first noble truth is, if you get involved with appearances and try to make them taste the way you want them to, you are going to suffer. Because you just, you know, the Zen teacher would say, you know, there's not enough milk and sugar in the universe. <laughs> or, you know, bad idea. <laughs> Can't be done, you know. So when you set out to make the apparent reality perfectly the way you want it to, this is, you know, extremely difficult. And so the reality that the, the faceless reality or the nameless reality which is, you know, we can also say where beneath the surface or behind, you know, appearances where everything connects, everything is one. There's plenty of, you know, love or resources or sustenance to go around at this other level. Um, so this, um, and... Um, so anyway, the, so the sense of, uh, you know, striving to perfect the apparent, the apparent reality and make it the way you want is suffering, and yet, you know, how do we realize and appreciate the true spirit? So we can, you know, this is, uh, I tried to suggest in meditation tonight, you know, just see if you can savor, what about just savoring this moment? in this stillness and silence, and have a sense of receiving. Let yourself just receive and, and, and be here, and nothing special. Not, you know, like you need some special experience to prove that you're okay, and not that you need anything particular, and you can just be here and receive this moment. And let, you know, your breath and your body support you. And it doesn't have to be one way or another. It doesn't have to be pleasant or nice or, you know, a certain temperature or, you know, I'm not thinking. You know. So there's a sense of uh, however else we describe the moment, sweet or sour, bitter, there's a sense of, uh, some sense of receiving the blessedness of a moment. And receiving the blessedness is that we actually give our attention to something and we acknowledge something, and we receive, we taste, we savor. I don't know if I can make sense of all of this, you know, but a little feeling maybe. So, um, again, you know, uh, sometimes in Zen, there was a, a Zen teacher who said, uh, see with your eyes, smell with your nose, taste with your tongue. 
You could also say, you know, think your thoughts, feel your feelings. Nothing in the universe is hidden. What else would you have me say? And of course, the thing we would have him say is, how do I get it to taste the way I want it to? <laughs> Every moment. How do I do that? And that's when, you know, you might hear, not enough milk and sugar in all the world. But interestingly enough, you know, both Suzuki Roshi, Suzuki Roshi told us this story one time about how his teacher had, his teacher had, they had, they used to, at this, sometime in the year, harvest daikon, and then they would pickle them. It's uh, in Japan, we used to do it at Tassahara. You take salt and then this rice bran, and you layer the vegetables with the salt and rice bran, and the salt draws the water out, and the, there's, the seasoning from the rice bran goes into the vegetables, and they're salted, and they get a little limp, and then the barrel sort of fills up with liquid because the salt's drawing the water out of the vegetable. And one year, apparently, some of the pickles didn't quite make it. I mean, they were kind of rotten, very foul-tasting, smelling. So, you know, here's Suzuki Roshi. At that point, he was, you know, 12 or 13 years old, and there was a number of little boys there, young, young men, with this Zen teacher, so they wouldn't eat these. But the teacher kept putting them out for them to eat. <laughs> and um, finally one day, Suzuki Roshi thought he had a good idea, so at night he took the pickles out to the far <coughs> ends of the garden and buried them. <laughs> I mean, something's distasteful, dig a hole and bury it. <laughs> And if you have to, you know, do that in your own body. Find a place in there that you can encapsulate what's distasteful and bury it and don't look there anymore. And then study how to not look or acknowledge that part of your body. <laughs> I know about you, but I'm, you know, only after years, I mean, it's only in the last few years I found out how good I am at this. It's amazing. Anyway. Uh, the next day, the pickles were back. <laughs> and his teacher said, there won't be anything else to eat until you eat these pickles. He didn't seem to be interested particularly in who had buried them. Or, and, you know, he wasn't revealing whether or not he knew. So they ate the pickles. And Suzuki Roshi said, it was the first time in my life I experienced no thought. <laughs> uh, it was just chew and swallow. <laughs> Do you understand? Like it's thinking that says how bad this is. And I can't stand it. And I'm going to throw up. And I can't imagine, you know, doing something like this in America. I mean, this is, this is, you know, have it your way. This is the country of, you know, have it your way. Make it the way you want. We'll help you. <laughs> but interestingly enough, I told this story to a group of Trungpa Rinpoche students. And, and they said, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And then, you know, who knows if these stories are true or what. But apparently, went according to, you know, legend. <laughs> I don't even want to tell you this story. <laughs> according to legend, he was traveling with his Nyingma teacher, who was a giant of a man, over, well over six foot, and which is very tall for Tibetan, and a rather mountain of a man, large person too. And when they stopped somewhere at one point, there was a latrine. And uh, his teacher at one point said, get in there. And apparently Rinpoche looked around like, who is he talking to? <laughs> and then his teacher actually eventually had him eat from the latrine. And somebody said, and what happened then? And he said, I got very high. And then they said, and then what happened? He said, and I've never come down. <laughs> Again, this is not a practice I recommend. <laughs> but, you know, personally, you know, like I find the war in Iraq sort of like the same kind of idea. I found it extremely distasteful. You know, and there doesn't seem, and I don't know what to do, you know, except to chew and swallow. And to go on with my life and to see if I can in my own life be, you know, sense something about the true spirit. And when I meet people, to not be put off, or, you know, to see if I can meet somebody and not just, um, you know, they're like this or like that, and how do I deal with it? You know. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. So I keep, you know, studying. You know, how do I do this? Oh, you know, I just remembered, but I have a poem here for you. This is a little poem about, you know, the other reality, besides the world of appearances. And I thought it was especially nice because it's last night as I was sleeping, and since it is Martin Luther King Day, and since Martin Luther King had a dream, and his dream is something like this dream. This, by the way, is in, um, you know, the original uh, Roger, is it Roger Housden, who does the uh, ten, ten poems? Houston? Houston. Houston. Um, ten poems. This was the original ten poems to change your life. I noticed there's a, a pile out there to free your life, open your life. Anyway, there's more and more of them. So. But this was in the first one, Ten Poems to Change Your Life. <clears throat> Last Night as I Was Sleeping, by um, it's by Antonio Machado, and uh, this is a version by Robert Bly. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, oh, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said along which secret aqueduct O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night as I was sleeping I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here in my heart. And the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures.
Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night as I slept, I dreamt, marvelous error, that it was divinely precious here in my heart. <clears throat> so this to me is, you know, a pretty um, subtle and, you know, difficult question. Um, because it doesn't seem quite right to just say, I'm not going to make an effort to make the world the way I want it to be. Right? Because if you're only involved in that, and I, I have this tendency personally, you know, I want every little thing to be the way I want it to be. I want the traffic to be the way I want it to be. I want the sponges to do what I tell them to. I want the cups to behave. If I nudge a cup and it falls on the floor, I don't want it to break. If something falls apart or doesn't do what I want, I, I want to know, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? Is it that hard? Grow up. Get it together. I'm trying really hard. Why don't you? You know, I, so I go on and on like this, you know, trying to get things. And of course, things don't care. <laughs> Are you talking to me? <laughs> Do you understand? So anyway, in that kind of world, I mean, it is... So where is the world of, you know, the, the water flowing to me? And is there some way I could get the world to behave and be so that I could experience the water flowing to me? It doesn't work like that, does it? So I've been on the wrong track for you know a long time. Um, it's and it's very painful. Um, you know, and there's good reasons for it. Oh, I'm on the wrong track. You know, but we're not talking about that tonight. <laughs> um, so I would like to you know sense the the water flowing to me. And to, and to feel the vibrancy of the bees in my heart, in my life, you know, making honey from my failures, and to know the bright sun, and to have, you know, the sense of connection. And, you know, again, there's nobody out there who is going to be loving enough to give me the connection that I want and the love that I want, because I'm going to have to do it, you know, and I can... As far as I can tell, I can only do that, you know, by, uh, by practicing that, you know, sitting with, in meditation, you know, sitting with what's happening and finally being willing to be with it, to be a good friend, to listen to myself, to receive myself, to know myself, to touch, to, you know, connect with and to settle into my own heart, <clears throat> to be in my own body to be in my own pain and difficulty. 
and not be trying to, you know, bury it, not be trying to mask it over with, with uh, you know, milk and sugar, not to be trying to make me look some way that then people would recognize and then I'd be loved and then I'd be this and then it, you know, it's just, it never works. Mm. <clears throat> so, I've, um, every so often I come across a little something that is, you know, kind of fun and interesting for me and I thought I'd share with you one of my recent discoveries. This is called Conversations with the Inner Dog. Um, and um, this is written by a, a, this is a little book um, written by a woman named Lynn Dedanen. And she said she'd had a lot of trouble with her black and white Springer Spaniel Cosmo. He would bark at other dogs and misbehave in various ways. And she couldn't seem to get him trained. Do you understand? I've never seemed to be able to get myself trained either. And she started finally one day talking to him about his behavior and funny thing, he listened attentively and his behavior changed. So I thought I'd read you a little dog training, but before I do, I want to explain to you, you know, there is a sense in which some people in Zen, you know, there are many sayings about dogs. There is, of course, does a dog have Buddha nature? That's a famous koan, you know, in Zen. Does a dog have Buddha nature? And um, also, you know, Katagiri Roshi, for instance, used to say to us sometimes, Zen is not like training your dog. You know, sit, heal, shut up, be quiet, be still, you know, don't think. <laughs> like, who, who did you think was in charge here? And then there's also the sense in Zen that, you know, all of us when we were fairly young, we had a, a vibrant, alive, energetic, uh, playful little puppy in our life. And, but occasionally, you know, he didn't behave well in company, especially with one's parents. And so, you know, little by little, you leave the puppy back in your room or maybe down in the basement. And then sometimes after you've left the puppy in the basement, you know, it whines or it barks for your attention. And of course, then you just move up a floor in your house. <laughs> Eventually, you move up a number of floors so you're in the attic. <laughs> and the dog is somewhere down in the basement. And, you know, meditation practice, as I mentioned, beginning of the evening, you know, how do you shift your consciousness from your head, from the attic, from the thinking, planning, conceiving, scheming mind, you know, move back down into the house and then meet up with the dog, the inner dog. <laughs> and, you know, how do you become friends with that inner dog? Now, some people, you know, their inner dog, it's been such a long time that that inner dog, if it's anything, you know, like me, you know, my inner dog was pretty, and it's still, like, not exactly trusting. You're the one who left me here. <laughs> and, you know, there's some snarling at times. You know, and, you know, first of all, the dog is in lethargy, right? Because after snarling and anger is 
you know, despondency, lethargy. This is true of all mammals. You know, if you read a general theory of love or whatever, you know, you know that that mammals, after they've been abandoned, and they, they go past the anger, resentment stage into despondency, despair, depression. So, you know, as you move and you meet the depressed one, then, you know, pretty soon, you know, it's a good sign that, it, you know, the dog is then angry, resentful. You know, now you're getting past something, you know, you're getting, you know, so you're re-meeting, you know, yourself and what you left behind. And eventually, you know, you have a, a dog that's very fun to be with, you know. And it's energetic and playful, and you have some creativity and spontaneity in your life and some vigor and enthusiasm and running here and running there and jumping up and down. And you have some, you know, you have a lot of possibilities that you didn't have when the dog, the inner dog was... And, you know, knew that you're not interested. You've got a nice life going on up in your head. What do you care? <laughs> so, with that as a little bit of a background, I'd like to offer you some dog training tips. This is dog training number one, the fool on the leash. Why do you waste your time snarling at other dogs when you are on a leash? What's the point? There's no point. You are identified with negative emotions. This is your me, not your I, who is snarling and lunging. Let go of the illusion that you are fierce and frightening. You're not. You are pathetic. Do you think that it matters that you seem to be fierce? Don't make me laugh. You are a fool at the end of his rope. No one is the least troubled by you. When you are ready to give up your illusions, when you're ready to see things as they are, you will be a truly happy dog. You see, you really are on a leash. And what does it matter? Nothing. <clears throat> So, and um, I also wanted to read you dog training number four. I've started trying to talk to myself, you know. But, you know, I'm not trying to talk to the dog exactly, you know. I try to talk to the dog trainer. Because as far as I can tell, it's the dog trainer, the would-be, you know, dog trainer, who's the one who needs some training in this case, not actually the dog. The dog is not so much of a problem. You know, it's, for me, it's the one who says, what's wrong with you anyway? Shape up, get it together, behave. That one is a real problem. <clears throat> but maybe that's just another dog. Uh, dog training number four, heal but don't follow. <laughs> Do you think that I'm crazy trying to teach you? Well, I'm not. But it is a bit tricky trying to teach a dog. I don't want you to follow me. Do you understand? It's a paradox. I want you to heal, but not to follow. I mean, I don't want a brainwashed dog. I want you to heal because you'll be safe and we will be together. We'll be on the path. 
together. Won't that be nice? <laughs> but it isn't important. You may have to go into the woods for a while, and you may need to encounter bears and deer and rabbits, and they may be your teachers. So I don't want you to do what I say just because you believe I know better or because you believe you will be punished if you do not do what I tell you. I want you to wake up and stop being mechanical. I want you to see what all this teaching points to and not simply master each little trick to satisfy me. Of course you can learn to chase a ball and bring a stick. So what? What does any of that matter? You will be like the pious man who knows how to kneel and pray, sip the wine and munch the bread, but hasn't a clue about God. Of course, none of us do. But some of us know we don't know. Remember, the person who holds the other end of the leash is a fool as well. <clears throat> well, just to remind you, um, you know, we're, we're, we have an inner dog. We also have, you know, someone who's the would-be dog trainer. But none, neither of those, you know, it's not so important to identify with either of those as being more truly you, right? And usually we, inter we most of us tend to identify with the dog trainer, the would-be dog trainer, you know. A few of us identify with being the dog. That can be a lot of fun. But it's not quite right. You know, we're actually studying how to have the dog and the dog trainer get along and be good friends. But there's also you yourself who are not, who are like the true spirit of the grain. You know, not this way or that way. Flavorless. You know, and blessed and precious. I don't know if I'm making any sense tonight, but anyway, it's what I have to share with you. Uh, and it really is uh, sweet uh, being here with everyone. Appreciate your practice and your good hearts. Um, I appreciate it very much. So thank you all. <clears throat> um, I do. <clears throat> I like to do the chant at the end of the evening. Here we'll chant the syllable "ho," if you would. Uh, and while we do this, we share our hearts with one another. Uh, you're letting the sound come into your body and resonate through your body and come out in your voice. And then you can bring to mind anyone you'd like to share the merit and blessings of the evening with, your family, friends, others in the room, and on out into the world to various beings in various stations of life. So let's... Um, and if there's any part of your body that's in pain or difficulty, let the sound resonate there. Uh, if there's anybody in pain or difficulty in your life, you can let the sound resonate and go out to them. Okay? Okay. So I'll hit the bell to begin, and I'll hit the bell to end. Uh, when you run out of breath, just inhale, and then join back in the sound. And when I hit the bell to end, then you can finish the breath you're on. Okay?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.